And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 256 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I'm JD. Welcome back. I'm back. Back All again sudden, because you can't get rid of ev- <laughs> Because you were excited and getting back into it, and also everyone else's work schedules are hell, and you are generous with your time. Yes, yes, I am. I will always hey, if if uh if I get an excuse to just come on to someone's podcast, I mean I will take that excuse. That is fair and appreciated. Uh, how was your week this week? Well, uh, uh, bad news. I feel like absolute crap, but that is because good news. I am fully vaccinated now. Exciting. I got my second shot yesterday. I had to leave work uh, four hours early because I felt like absolute dog shit. Uh, but I, uh, but hey. You know what? I feel safe to go to the movies now, and that makes me very happy. Well, in like two weeks. You've got that two-week waiting period for it to totally kick in. Yeah. This yeah. is true. PSA. This is true. Good science. Sorry Good to science. sorry to kill the buzz. Hey, but you know what? I, I got the shot, and that's what counts. <laughs> that is. I'm, I am two weeks from my second dose, and I'm ready for, like, it will be like a kid waiting for Christmas, waiting for these two weeks to pass. <laughs> yep all right well let's let's dive into comics mm-hmm. we have an early look this week at the first issue of shadow man written by colin bunn with art by john davis hunt colors by Jordi belair and letters by clayton cowles you took a look at this too what did you think i really enjoyed it it uh like you i'm kind of you know off and on with Colin Bunn. Um, I'm a, I'm a fan of Harrow County. I like uh, anything he's done with Venom, especially the uh, the three War of the Realms tie-in issues during Donny Cates' run. Uh, so I was looking forward to to digging into this, um, especially John Davis Hunt. He's a fantastic artist, and Belair and Cowles on Belair and Cowles on colors and letters. Always here for them. So I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed just weird mystical shit. So this was right up my alley. Yeah, I I dug this too. Uh, anytime there is a horror element, I think that really plays to Bun's strengths as a writer. I know very very little about Shadow Man. Valiant is something I've gotten into a little more over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not have a deep knowledge base around it. What about you? Not at all. Uh, I think I read an issue of Harbinger a couple of years ago, but that's it. I think this is pretty easy to get into without a lot of a lot of knowledge. I think there's one one concept in here about like this sort of realm of the dead that uh, I did have a little knowledge of from another book uh, a couple of years ago. The name of which I'm blanking on, but Magdalene <laughs> Visaggio wrote it. It was excellent. 
Dr. Mirage. That's the one. She has to go into the land of the dead to save her husband who is dead. Or something like that. Uh, Sounds wonderful. Yeah. I have had trouble getting into some Valiant titles in the past because I think like earlier in the reboot they've wanted you to, to kind of read everything and know what's going on. And I feel like some of these more recent releases, maybe since Heather Antos moved over there from Marvel, uh, have been a little more new reader friendly. I would say I know so, that... yeah. This this issue felt very easy to get into. Yeah. I know she's been a common denominator in the books I've really liked because <laughs> she has edited all of them. Yeah, she uh, she was editor on the first arc of a comic that we're going to talk about later. That's true. This is about Jack Boniface, who is the musician from New Orleans who also has the ability to talk to figures like Baron Samedi, who is this death figure, uh, and ends up being told, hey, you need to go deal with this problem at this rich person party where they're uh, opening portals to the realm of the dead, basically. Yeah, that's, that's like a big no-no. That's a big no-no. Yeah, you would think rich people would learn, huh? Actually, no. No. <laughs> No. That's the chance. best joke you've told yet. Thank you. <laughs> I uh I'm going for a dry comedy. Sure. Yeah. Um no, they don't. Anyway. Never. It goes badly mm-hmm. and he's got to clean stuff up. And maybe the wall between realms is fading and he's going to have to deal with something with that ongoing. That is the general gist here. Uh, I am with you, though. The art in this is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Hunt and Belair are a fantastic team. I am always ready for Belair to color anybody, whoever she works with. She always... Usually, wh- wh- whatever artist she works with is already great on their own, and they're great with other colorists, um, but she truly does elevate any book she's on. Agreed. The order cutoff for Shadow Man number one is April 5th, so you still have time to let your comic shop know if you want a copy. Uh, It comes out at the end of April, on April 28th. Moving on, Once in Future number 17. Written by Kieran Gillen, art by Dan Mora, colors by Tamara Bonville, and letters by Ed Dukeshire. This is the rare week where we're going to have two books out from the same artist. I do not know how Dan Mora is putting out both Once in Future and Detective Comics at the same time. That is wild to me, especially since Detective Comics didn't take a break for Future State. Like, he he's already drawn two issues of Batman Dark Detective. Yeah. Dan Mora is a beast. Truer words never spoken. This is the penultimate issue of this arc we get some answers about what is going on and what Merlin's plans are and what his schemes are and how he is playing everybody. You have read this entire series in the last week or so, is that right? Yes, I got up to... I I actually finished reading it Tuesday and then I was able to read uh, the new issue the day it came out. I look forward to when this is done, reading through it all at once. But, oh, it's going to be uh, great. How how great was it when Beowulf shows up there at the end of that first start? And you're just like, <laughs> wait, what the fuck? This isn't, this isn't Arthurian. Beowulf doesn't show up at the end of the first arc. No? No. He shows up, he shows up in the first issue of arc two. 
Okay. For whatever reason, I had him in my head as, like, the last page of the first arc. No, the last page of the first arc was the reveal of Merlin. That's right. Okay. Yes, also, also great reveal, though. Yes. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the last page of this one, but I will tell you what. This is a book that gets some great last pages in each issue. Really, it does. Uh, it also has great names for each arc. Like, this one's called The Parliament of Magpies. Fantastic. I, yes. I love, I really, so I, I, uh, I actually mentioned on Twitter, um, through the Comics Quest podcast, Comics Quest podcast, uh, Twitter handle, you can follow us at Comics Quest show, uh, where occasionally I will talk about comics that I'm getting back into. And I mentioned on there that Kieran Gillen is an art, is a writer that I, he's, he's a big blind spot for me. I have read. Very little of his stuff, but there is stuff of his that I plan to to read for uh, future episodes of Comics Quest, in particular his Young Avengers run and The Wicked and the Divine. Uh, but like, but yeah, so Once in Future, I think, is the first comic of his I've ever read. And let me tell you, the bar is already set very high, and I already know that it's going to get even better from here. Yeah, I, of course, took that opportunity to uh, DM you about Peter Cannon Thunderbolt. Yes! Because I am, that has I am a been, comics-buying sadist. That is uh, That was popping up on my uh, recommended for a long time for a comic, because I, you know, we're in the, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, and I buy everything online. So, of course, that one kept popping up as like, hey, you keep looking up stuff by this writer, how about you buy Peter Cannon Thunderbolt? And I was like, I mean, eventually, yeah. And then you just DM me and I was like, this is what it's about. I'm like, well, crap. Uh, there goes money. Buy money. Thank <laughs> you, uh, Peter Kenneth Thunderbolt, which the hardcover is massive. I mean, it's only five, six issues. Yeah. Uh, but just the hardcover itself is one of the biggest hardcovers I've ever had. It's massive. I wonder if it's as big as that Adventure Man hardcover, which is wildly large. That's the the series by Chip Zdarsky and the Dodsons, isn't it? Matt Fraction and the Dodsons. Matt Fraction, sorry. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we have digressed, which is shocking for us. Uh, for every hour of recorded audio, whenever we record, there are three hours of unaired audio. Yep. Uh, that's not exaggeration. That's literally the ratio. Uh... How great is, uh, I'm just going to refer to this character as Gawain, so as to avoid spoilers, but how great is Gawain in this issue? So good. Just so good. I love every character. I love, that's what I love about Kieran Gillen is that even characters that I absolutely despise on, on a basic level, like I just really hate them. I still love them because I understand their point of view and they're beautifully written and I'm just I'm in love with this book. It's just fantastic. Yeah, I, I do not have words for how much I love both the storytelling and just the art. Tamara Bonvillain's colors in particular are just... Like, the world is on fire when things burn. It, it, it glows off the page, and it's these wild, eerie, like, fluorescent pinks and purples and greens that I'm a huge sucker for. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's all just fucking perfect. This book is fucking perfect. It's it's just so good. Yeah. I 
one of if the you're not reading it yet you have to read it y'all it's great the only excuse for waiting at this point is if you want like a big oversized hardcover because i've got to imagine oh yeah this book has to get one eventually right like this is a perfect book for for a nice oversized hardcover Absolutely. And also, if y'all haven't read Claws yet, Dan Mora's comic with Grant Morrison, my favorite writer of all time, y'all have to read Claws. At least that first miniseries. The miniseries, at least. The one-shots are great as well, but that miniseries is just... Oh. Chef's On kiss. to DC. On to DC. On to DC. Batman Superman, number 16. Uh, this is written by Gene Lunyang, pencils by Ivan Rice, inks by Danny Mickey, colors by Sabine Rich, and letters by Saida Timofante. This issue was not at all what I expected structurally. Nope. And I'm going to be really honest. I opened the first page and I'm like, okay, this is, a, this is a fine setup to like introduce these two worlds. And then I got to the editor's note where it's like, you can read like the top half all the way to the end and come back for the bottom half. Or you can read them page by page. I'm like, oh, this is, I am skeptical of this working for me. Knowing, knowing that I am really bad at, you know how sometimes in a comic you'll have like a character talking and then a narration caption on the page and they're two different like monologues yeah. and they cut back and forth. I really struggle with that. So I thought that an issue set up as the top half of the page is a film reel set in Metropolis and the bottom half of the page is a film film reel set in Gotham was really going to be a problem for me. And then it worked. And then it worked. And then it worked. This should not work and it does. And my favorite things are the things that should not work but do. Yeah. So I'm curious, how did you read it? I read a page, like a, a, a double page at a time. I read the top, then read the bottom, then turned the page, and read the top, and read the bottom, and turned the page. Okay, I, re I read each story on its own. So I went through, read all of Superman's story, and then went back and read all of Batman's story. So how did it read for you that way? I really enjoyed it. I, I, I loved going on that journey of like, this is, like, I was like, this is Superman. Like, this is a Superman story, and it's great. But this is very different because, I mean, like, you have Dr. Martha Wayne there with her playboy son, Bruce Wayne. And you have Alfred there calling, uh, calling Martha love. Like, not in public. <laughs> Alfred, who is their bodyguard. Yes, he legit has a, like, a bulletproof security vest on. Yeah. Um, kind of jacked. Very jacked at the end of the issue. Very jacked at the end, uh, for sure. But it was really interesting going back and reading and reading through the Batman story and seeing the the um, that you know, like okay, these are two very different worlds. It almost I, I I'm really curious as to how this series is going to go on, and with seemingly these two characters existing on, I'm assuming parallel Earths. Yeah, they have to be different Earths. So. As you went back and read through the second time, mm -hmm. did you stop and, like, compare where in Batman's story you were with the Superman story on the top half? Or Yeah, they follow, pr like, pretty similar stories. Like, whenever there's yeah. the, the detective work going on, they're both doing detective work at the same time. Or whenever we go through some backstory, whether it's Clark going through Bruce and Martha's story, or... Bruce and Rob and uh and Dick going through 
you know, the history of this rocket ship from deep space, they're happening par- parallel to each other. Yeah, and not only not only those kinds of beats, but the pacing at which each of these timelines becomes and this is this is I think for me what makes this setup work so well. Mm-hmm. The pacing at which each of those timelines becomes less familiar and more almost off-putting, right? Like more unsettling. Unsettling is probably the better word. More unsettling in the way that they differ from the continuity we know. Seeing Martha is exciting, but then seeing this version of Bruce is concerning. There's no way he's Batman. Mm-hmm. And then we learn that there's no Superman on this Earth. Or no, I'm sorry, that, that's the Earth with Superman. Yeah. Uh, uh, knowing there's no, learning there's no Superman on the Batman Earth, in the Batman story, because here's this rocket with a tiny baby skeleton in it that's been punctured by a, crypto, a kryptonite meteorite. Like. Which is just awful, but fantastic. Yeah. And like the way these worlds get more and more wrong. Yeah. What's interesting is that this is reminding me of the multiversity, the wonderful Grant Morrison comic. And that I love when people are like Grant. I feel like Morrison, they didn't create the multi, the multiverse, but they, but with the multiversity, they really dug into it and tried to explain everything going on with it. And I love that now, since that book has been released, more people are like playing with the multiverse and going like, okay, well let's, you know, let's take a look at this. Like how, what would happen if characters from this earth met characters from this earth and just see what's going on there. I I love when writers, when, when creators are doing that now. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, and I don't know, you may consider these spoilers. Feel free to jump forward, but I think this really tells us where this book is going to go. Ultimately, we see these two reels fizzle and Lois fall from one into the other, <laughs> where Batman recognizes her as the villain who's been trying to bust people out of Arkham because she thinks they're being experimented on, and we see they are. And like the idea, the the idea that Lois is going to connect these two worlds is interesting. Also, that we see then this this film reel pulls out, and we're back on Earth Zero, and Superman and Batman are up in space, dealing with this mass of film that's wrapped itself around a satellite, and these like inter-multiversal beings, who are keepers of this continuity, show up and accuse them of having damaged it. So we have three Earths at play now. This is just a Grant Morrison comic not written by Grant Morrison. <laughs> and that is not, that is like a, that is not no, a from, knock on Gene Luen Yang. He is I was going to say, from, from JD, this is the highest praise. This is the highest, <laughs> it kind of is, yeah, because uh, I, I love Grant Morrison a lot. So say we all. Uh, and like, no, no small part too does this work because of layouts and are selling all the sort of strangeness of the story. I was super excited for this book going forward it or going into it and despite a little bit of trepidation at the format really really dug it. Yeah, this was this was I I have a I'm glad I read it the way I did because um I 
you know, I don't have a tablet or anything like you do. I have a, I have, you know, my tiny little phone screen to read off of, um, digital issues. So this would have been a chore trying to read it the way you did. Uh, so I'm glad I read it the way yeah. I did. If I had a, if I, I had a physical single issue, I would have probably, I might've read it the way you did reading each double yeah, I mean, page. And I definitely time. did read the paper copy here. Batman Black and White number four. JD, which was your favorite story? All of them. Literally all of them. I love them. I love them all so much. If I had to choose favorites, though, probably the last two stories. Uh, Checkmate by Daniel Warren John, written and drawn by Daniel Warren Johnson with letters by Russ Wooten, I believe is how you say his name. And, um, and the final deal, The Fool's Journey, written by Becky Cloonan with art uh by terry dodson and rachel dodson and i'm not remembering who did the letters on that that was becca carey okay those might be my favorites those are both excellent i i agree with you everything in here is fantastic um checkmate was probably in my top two uh any any time you bring in alfred it's just it's just gonna pull on those heartstrings alfred as parental figure will never not get me. Yeah. I mean, we just, I mean, last week we we were discussing the great moments of Nightwing. Yeah. I also really dug the Green Deal, because I am always going to yeah. be a sucker for Chips Darsky. Um, and, like, he had me going there. Like, the, the thing that really, I feel like there's always sort of an unexpected hook with Chip. And here it is, because, I mean, okay. Maybe we're finally all past expecting it all to be sex jokes or whatever. Maybe. I I am, at least. Like, I know he is he has more depth than just sex criminals, even though it's wonderful and everyone should read it. I did not expect the hook to be kind of the, no, it's what you expect, and Ivy will sell the reader on this, and Batman's gonna be like, no, here are the reasons why I don't believe this. You're you're just you're just joshing me. Mm-hmm. Chip, I'll get you next time, Gadget. Shakes <laughs> fist at Cloud. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. Uh, also, Nick Bradshaw, I believe this uh, in, uh, This is his first interior work for DC. Oh, is that right? I, I believe so. That. I believe that was in the... W- wonderful thing about the, about these is that after each story, or before each story, depending on which one it is, um, they give they give like the the usual descriptions for the creators on each story. And I believe in Nick Bradshaw's, it did say he's, he's been doing covers for DC for quite some time, but I believe this is his first interior work. That's cool. Yeah. His art in here is like wildly detailed. It reminded me a lot of Ed McGinnis. I can see that. Yeah. But I prefer it to Ed McGinnis's work because Ed McGinnis likes to make his, he likes to make everyone like, really big and not realistic whatsoever and, and not in the best way sometimes but sure. i i I, per, I prefer like nick bradshaw is like ed mcginnis but better for me uh and then this was also lettered by aditya bitakar who just again if he's lettering a book you know it's going to be a good book it's, it's a weird seal of approval uh, the other two stories in here, just really quickly, are Davenport, Davenport House, which is written and drawn by Carl Kerschel, letters by Steve Wands. This is gorgeous and very sad. Yeah, it was. I I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to read anymore. I'm just, I just might have to just wallow in the sadness that is this story. Yeah. 
uh like i feel like it's it's we're kind of going through this issue backwards like yeah. i feel like it's in a great place it's the second story in here you've had kind of a light story first and a little lighter story third and then it gets you in the heartstrings on number two and number four yeah and then and five 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 is also very sad too yes that's that's fair okay it's just gonna get you in the heartstrings a lot yeah um also like i know carl kershaw normally works with with a particular colorist i'm so used to seeing his work with her colors uh to the point that i wasn't totally sure what to expect here and no it his his art uncolored is also still gorgeous Mm -hmm. still absolutely gorgeous the final or first actually story in here is a night in the life of a bat in gotham which is a great title Written by Joshua Williamson, art is by Riley Rosmo, and letters are by Darren Bennett. Another crazily detailed uh, art story. This is about Bruce taking care of bats and not letting people sell bats to rich people as pets, because rich people don't learn, as it happens. We talked about that already, yeah. We did, but you know, some t- some points bear repeating. Uh, we also had pinups by Simone DeMeo and Jin Bartel, which also both gorgeous. Simone DeMeo tweeted out a process piece on his pinup that is worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Detective Comics number 1034. The main feature here is The Neighborhood, part one, written by Mariko Tamaki, with art by Dan Mora, colors by Jordi Belair, and letters by Aditya Bidakar. JD is doing a happy dance. Mariko Tamaki is writing Batman, I'm so excited. (laughs) So, I think you messaged me to say that this book was not what you expected it to be. No, it's not. It was 100% not what I expected it to be, and... All the better for it. Yes, like I was, I was going into this expecting, like, okay, you know, I mean, it's yes, it's a, you know, it's not like the, it's not the Batman man title, but I'm expecting, you know, still some, you know, Batman action. No, we don't have a lot of Batman action. This is like a lot of like backdoor politics and and like, you know, learn to get get to know your neighbors and you know, like a little bit of detective work in there and Bruce adjusting to his new lifestyle of not being rich anymore. It's great. It's, I did not know I needed like a street level Bruce Wayne book, but that's kind of what this is. It's, this is a weird comparison, but it's about Batman in the way that like a Miles Morales book is about Miles as Spider-Man. It's so much about the people in his life. Mm-hmm. And in this case, that means these neighbors who he kind of has to tolerate to keep up appearances, who will catch him as he's coming home at five in the morning and invite him to a party that night and insist he come. And he's like, uh, I, guess, I, I just want to go. I don't want to do this. One of One of his neighbors is this journalist who he describes as He says she's convinced she's the last good journalist in town, and honestly, I agree with her. Unfortunately, I don't think she likes me. A few pages later, you know, I'd like her if she hadn't just pinched my best bottle of scotch. (laughs) It's great. The writing here is fantastic. Mariko just really understands this world, the world that she is delving into. We've already talked about how great Dan Mora is, and how I've already said Jordi Belair elevates every book she's on and of mm-hmm. course as you've mentioned Aditya Bidikar 
any book he works on is great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I never in a hundred years would have guessed that that's what this book is about. And I'm okay not seeing it coming in this case. <laughs> I'm just really, I'm just really excited for whatever, whatever this is going to be. Me too. The backup in this issue is Demon or Detective Part 2, written by Joshua Williamson, art and colors by Gleb Melnikov, and letters by Troy Pateri. Did you get a chance to check out the first part of this in Batman 106? I did not. I still have to catch up on Batman. Cool. Uh, This picks up right where that leaves off. Uh, This is exactly what it says on the tin, right? It's Damien kind of trying to figure out what his place is. He's gone to Talia after realizing, you know, Batman and he are not going to work in the same way. He's lost Jonathan as his best friend since Jonathan is much older now and also lives a thousand years in the future, like you do. Uh, and, like, he comes to visit and they still hang out, but it's it's not the same. Yeah. So... He has gone to Talia to see if he can find a place there. And Talia says, yeah, my mistake was treating you like my child and not just another assassin. So he jumps out of the plane. He's not going to have any part of this. Um, we <laughs> learn, or helicopter, whatever they're flying. He, he, he pieces. He literally just hits that eject. Not literally. He jumps out a door. But he, he metaphorically hits that eject button. Uh, we learn that there is this third branch of the, the League. We know the League of Assassins and the League of Shadows. There's also a League of Lazarus. And we find out that there is a tournament coming up between the best fighters in the world for mysterious stakes. Uh, obviously, this is something, I think, in the ongoing that Damien's going to get pulled into. We also get the return of a character who I'm not sure we've seen since... Flashpoint, who I think people will be excited for. Let's say the Young Justice set will be excited for. And this character, I guess, is being positioned to sort of be a player in this series going forward when it spins off in its own series in April. Yeah, uh, is Williamson writing that one as well? The the ongoing? Yes, uh, Williamson is writing. Gleb Melnikov is on art for it as well. And I'm going to assume Troy Pateri will will follow over for letters. I don't know that, but that's probably a fair guess. I'll probably have to start picking that one up, too, as soon as I uh, catch up on Batman. Yes. Harley Quinn, number one, written by Stephanie Phillips, art by Riley Rosmo, colors by Ivan Placencia, and letters by Darren Bennett. So, Brian has read a lot of Stephanie Phillips and is a big fan. I have read her two issues of Harley Quinn Future State, and then, like, a backup here and there. Mm-hmm. I have really wanted a good Harley Quinn book for a long time. And I love the idea of Harley in Gotham trying to be a good guy. And I really, really wanted this to be good. And I loved it so much. You had me there for a second. I thought you were about to say, and I didn't like it. I was like, wait, hold on, what? <laughs> nope, no tricks here, no traps, no, no pulling the rug out from under you. There were high stakes, and it lived up to it. Yes. I, I love Riley Rosmo. I love... Uh, I just love everything they do. They're, they're great. Yeah. I love the way even Placencia colors Rosmo here. Oh, it's so good. I think that... And I mean, it's Harley Quinn, so, so it, it lends itself to brighter colors. But I think Rosmo benefits from a bright color palette to help keep the work looking clean 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and this has, I think, a palette that really supports the level of detail he puts in his work, the way it's stylized, and the amount of motion in it to keep it from feeling busy or hard to focus on. I think some colorists don't color him as well as others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. I love it. And Stephanie Phillips' writing, I am completely unfamiliar with her. Uh, this is the first thing of hers I've ever read. So, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on this book. There's, there's a scene in here where she returns to her apartment and someone's broken in and it's, it's Batman. <laughs> He's like, Harley, I need you to do better. I can't be your babysitter. Okay, cool. Sure. Fine. When do I get the money? <laughs> He's like, you, you pay, what? right? No, that's not how this works, Harley. Yeah. Ask Dick who going into issue number one of Nightwing was flat broke. Not anymore. Um, nope. Something tells me Alfred did not leave anything to Harley, though. Unfortunately. How how buck wild would that have been? <laughs> just all of a sudden, it's like, oh, here's $10,000. Just, here you yeah. go. And Harley, Harley ultimately takes a tack in this book that is, I know what it's like to be manipulated by the Joker. I know what it's like to be caught up in his whole... don't punch this problem let me try to solve it human to human and i really like that as a very fresh breath of air in gotham yes harley is the perfect character to do that because yes she is someone who will absolutely take her giant hammer and beat the shit out of you but she will also recognize when that is not going to work she under you know her having that her background in psychiatry she completely understands that there are just some things you just can't punch your way out of. You have to talk it out. Yeah, I'm a licensed psychiatrist. I'm pretty sure, I'm sure your, your license, license is not good valid. anymore. Yeah, he's like, I don't think your license is valid anymore. <laughs> and it's like, but just give her a chance, Bruce. Yes, and he does. He does. Yeah, very reluctantly, but he does it. Well, and... She comes home to find an appropriate reward awaiting her. Oh, yeah, the bat. The bat toaster. Ugh, that was that was so good. I and, love this book. Yeah, and then also the reveal of um who I'm going to assume is going to be the villain of this book for a while. I think that's the case. I know he's on at least some of the covers coming up in in future issues. I'm Hugo excited. Strange. Oh god. I'm excited for this. Yeah, you know, I'm not normally a big Hugo Strange person, but I actually really like the idea of him versus Harley in this context. See, I have been on the Hugo Strange put him in a movie train for a while. Uh, I know everyone wants uh, Giancarlo Esposito to play Lex Luthor, which he would be great. Don't get me wrong. But put Esposito in as Hugo Strange. I would watch that. I would watch Giancarlo Esposito do anything, but I would watch that. I would watch him read a phone book. Yeah. Yeah. Teen Titans Academy number one. Written by Tim Sheridan. Pencils by Rafa Sandoval. Inks by Jordi Tarragona. Colors by Alejandro Sanchez. And letters by Rob Lee. I definitely, definitely would recommend you read The Future State and uh, Infinite Frontier one-shot, like six-page stories before coming into this one. Uh, I've actually seen a couple of re- reviews for this book that have been like, 
there is way too much way too quickly in this issue and i think that probably is is true if you have not read those pieces coming in i am always going to be a sucker for here is a school for magic characters here is a school for i'm thinking of strange academy not the obvious thing the obvious and problematic thing which gets called out in this book thank you (laughs) schools for superheroes I don't know what it is about the setup, but I love it. I'm just a sucker for it. I grew up watching too much Saved by the Bell, I guess. (laughs) Also, wildly problematic, but what I've watched of the new series? Weird, but at the end of the day, I think good. I think. Um, The new Titans, Dick, uh, Starfire, Raven, Beast Boy, Cyborg, are running a school to train superheroes. We learn in this that the upperclassmen become the current Teen Titans roster. Uh, That includes here Crush and Red Arrow and Bunker and Wallace West and Hakeem. We see them actually out in the field fighting my favorite dumb DC villain. My favorite ridiculous concept that should not work and yet so often does. The Clock King. Yeah! I love Clock King. I love Clock King so much. I believe this is the William Talkman version, who wants to set every important clock in the world to Clock King time. <laughs> Everyone's like, what? what is this? Why are we wasting our time with this guy? But I guess we gotta... It's so goofy and funny. Um, the, the sort of hook of this series, this has been heavily advertised on. It's a big part of this issue. It's been teased in those three stories so far. Is the canonical introduction of Red X. Uh, we have someone hack the, the, it's not called the danger room. That's a different thing, but it's, it's the danger room. <laughs> someone hacks the danger room to like, have Red X stalking Dick and then he's got to like fight him off uh, while he's teaching this class and the kids are all asking about his backstory someone gives him for his birthday the original Red X mask that he thought he had lost uh, and the, the mis- one of the mysteries here is going to be who, who shows up as the Red X we saw in the future but the, the, the kids designs are fun here we've seen some of them in Future State already Brat Girl, Chupacabra, and one other bat-themed character who Dick has sponsored to come from Gotham are favorites. Uh, There is a sentient queer ragdoll character who is amazing. Like, a ragdoll that's been magically imbued with sentient. Um, And then miguel from Dial H for Hero and Billy Batson are also in in the cast. Uh... As well as some others. Gorilla Greg. Gorilla Greg is a, a great character. He is a gorilla. He's good at technology. His name's Greg. He's Gorilla Greg. Uh, awkward roommates are Tubi. Whose ability is transforming himself into tubes. And Roundhouse, who can turn into a ball. They don't care for each other very much because they were each promised their own rooms. Uh <laughs> Like, the list kind of goes on and on. There is a lot in this, but boy howdy is it everything I wanted it to be. Uh, it's the same art team who... Actually, that may not be true. I think someone else inked those Future State issues. Rafa Sandoval is the same penciler, though. 
Um, it looks every bit as good as those Future State issues did. I want more of this. I am so excited for for this series to finally be here. Bitterroot number 11. Another book that you have you have shotgunned, let's say. All today. Uh, created by David F. Walker, Chuck Brown, and Sanford Green, with colors by Sophie Dodgson, letters by Hassan Otsman-Elhau, and back matter curated by John Jennings, which I mentioned because I feel like the back matter is a huge part of this book. Like, there are always really great essays from uh, usually black people, but creators of color, academics of color, talking about different ways in which they've either found their voices in creative spaces, like in this issue, or the historical period of the Harlem Renaissance, or any number of topics relating to uh, uh, either the mystical elements, black art, people of color writing art, or creating art, rather, or or just anything anything related that fits into this world. It's It's always worth reading. What did you think of this book? I love it. So, so, so much. I love everything about it. I love the characters. I love the world. I love the lore. I love the art and the coloring. I love the action. I love the character dynamics. This is hands down one of my favorite comics I've read recently. I agree with everything you just said. There's a reason this always, always makes it on my favorite comics list at the end of the year for our top 10 episodes. I am so glad to see it back. I was a little worried because it's been, it feels like close to a year. Admittedly, time in 2020 was weird. Time in 2021 is not exactly normal. Uh, It's been most of a year, at least, since issue 10. I will say that this issue gives some really strong, like, recap, reintroduction, in ways that don't feel hand-holding, but are super useful just to remind you kind of who everyone is, what their status quo is, where they've been. Uh, I found that very helpful. And I also think it's a great way to sort of take us through where everyone's at now. Because it's been, what, a few months since issue 10. Mm-hmm. The world has changed. Um, specifically, uh, as some people see it, the devil is walking in the world. You had... You had characters who were transformed, uh, the Inzondo, and we saw Berg first in that position, and others, many people, are having to deal with now having these kind of monstrous features. The the Sanger family is producing medicines to help hold the transformations off, but these transformations that are the the product of grief and trauma they don't just go away that's one of the questions this issue raises the you can't just make grief and trauma disappear mm-hmm. so can you make these transformations reverse yeah there was um something i read recently about that i'm trying to remember exactly oh it's actually a comic that we're going to talk about a little bit later um amazing spider-man but it was in issue 60 when mj and peter are working through everything he would want to say to Harry. She has that great line of, you just went through several traumas. This isn't going to go away overnight. Yeah. And that's essentially what this issue is saying is that like, yes, like all these, all these people that have gone through an insane amount of trauma, it's not going to go away. You know, this is the, the, this elixir, this is 
this cure is a quick fix there but they have to they have to figure out how they're like what they can do for long term when we've seen a lot of comics i think over the last few years try to tackle the idea of trauma Mm -hmm. especially in like you know superhero world something is always going wrong and i think comics do that to varying degrees of success like anything else this i think does one of the best jobs of building a mythology that gives you know kind of a a a visual metaphor Mm -hmm. for that and that has world building built on how can we explore this it's i think a really smart way of talking about trauma and obviously we are talking both as white people yes uh obviously there is an entirely different and deep history of racial trauma that we cannot begin to speak to that is a part of this as well again i i point at the back matter in this book one of the essays uh one of the essays in the back of this issue specifically is is about uh it's called ford sanger and the cleansing power of black anger the importance of anger and processing trauma how fear there's a line here that's highlighted at the top fear motivates us to run away anger however motivates us to run toward a target that's something that feels like this issue this arc this issue sets up this arc to deal with Mm -hmm. um certainly it's something we saw explored in ways in the second arc as well um it's just such a good book it is i also love a little touch that they that they've put in here uh throughout the story is you know the Sangara family are not the only family fighting the um I believe you pronounce it Genu the the monsters that uh, they Genu Genu I think is what I have always said yeah. um the the monsters that they fight they're not the only family there are several families of different backgrounds different cultures who who fight them and I love that they each have their own word for this and, and yes. I, I love that like that's it's this really tiny detail but it really does you know what like broaden the scope of this book of showing like you know they, they all come from different places they all come from you know different backgrounds different cultures so of course they're going to view this one thing they're each going to view it in a different light and that i feel like also speaks to just us as people we're all, like we can all look at the same thing and get something different out of it and all call it something yeah. different well, the idea of coming together to fight a threat is also, I think, a nod toward the importance of intersectionality. Mm-hmm. This is a great, great story. Yes. Cannot recommend this book enough. And now for the worst possible transition in the history of this podcast. Haha, number three. <laughs> I am extremely unfamiliar with the, uh, with the writer for this book, which, which you will now say. Yes, this is written by W. Maxwell Prince. Art is by Roger Langridge. These are the only two people credited on this issue because it is a mostly silent issue. Uh, Langridge, I think, provides what little lettering is in this issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And certainly colored his art as well. Uh, W. Maxwell Prince, I think, is probably best known for Ice Cream Man. Which I need to read. You do. Uh, he, he works basically so far in the realm of existential horror. Like, Ice Cream Man is very suburban. This is, I don't know, it, it, it almost feels like a way on, on the dying of a certain part of Americana. 
like or just the 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 uh obsolescence of a certain part of americana Mm -hmm. clowns are not exactly major cultural figures in the way that they were you know i feel like 30 years ago is generous but bozo was at least on the air in my childhood are you familiar with bozo the clown is yes okay i am i i truly struggle with whether that is a, a a cultural touchstone in any way shape or form at this point <laughs> in history well i am what generation am i am i am i generation x no not or no or, you're gen z. i think you're technically z yeah i'm gen z my generation is not great just gonna say i mean i do not typically ascribe to cross-generational bashing unless it's boomers boomers are fair game um, I don't know. My generation, it, it, there's a there's a large portion of my generation who insists that Helen Keller was not real. All right, I think there's a difference between writing off a generation and idiots on the internet. True. I mean, I'm pretty sure millennials are responsible for flat earthers. So yeah, every group has their. I say this as a millennial. Every group has their uh, morons. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the only word. Um, I was just thinking of that scene from Blazing Saddles with uh, Gene Wilder's like, like, look, these are the com- like the common clave of the new world, you know, morons. Yeah, trust me, that was that was there in in my brain too. That is like subconsciously in my brain at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we have we have digressed from this book about a sad mime. A very sad mime. Look, he just he 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 wants to make a living, and no one is helping him out until he finds a goddamn robot in a dump. Yeah, you know, it's your traditional mime meets robot. Mime and robot become coworkers. Shitty scientists reclaim and dismember robot. Scientists kill robot and mime in gunfight. Story, you know. The usual stuff. Yeah. I appreciate that the robot's code name is Marcel, as in Marcel Marceau. Marcel Marceau, of course, with the best spoken line in Silent Movie. The only spoken line in that movie. <laughs> yes. Because two negatives make a positive. <laughs> Silent Movie is good. There is no greater joke in the entire history of cinema than having a mime speak the one word in a silent movie. It's great. That is the pinnacle of human achievement. And that is twice now we have mentioned Mel Brooks. I mean, look, Mel Brooks is a genius. Yep. And speaking of uh, Mel Brooks, I got straight up Young Frankenstein vibes from that, that scene where the mime and the robot are dancing. Right? I mean, they are putting on the Ritz. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I, love the, I love the little fake gunfight they have. That's great. And then, of course, it gets upended by that stupid fucking scientist who decides, I need to take my robot back away from you, even though this is your only friend. I love the art in this so much. Like, the the scientist is the worst, but also he is just the greatest character design. Like, he's just this short, kind of hunched over, balding dude with opaque anime glasses and you know what uh, he reminded tufts me of, of Arab... He reminded me of Jeff Smith's design for Dr. Zavanna in his wonderful Shazam! The Monster Society of Evil series. I was going to say a very short Dr. Robotnik. Sure. And he's got his two thugs who are like 
almost identical, except one has a square head and the other has sort of a really rounded chin that comes out as as an oval. Mm-hmm. Like the robots, a a a, a cyclops mm-hmm. with a bow tie. It's a great issue. It's re- it really is. It's so good. I this is my favorite issue of this so far. I think I need to go back We've to also read not... the others. Yes, you do. They're they're all excellent. Um, also the little girl and her frog. Yeah, the, oh, that last page was fantastic. Yeah. I forget what conversation it was in, but you expressed a, a, a desire to see more silent comics recently. I did, I believe it was last episode. No, 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 it wasn't the last episode, it was... I think uh, it was while we were talking about... Black Widow. Black Widow. Yeah, because yeah. um, the majority of that first issue is all action very little yeah. dialogue um yeah because one of my favorite issues of the wonderful new x-men run by grant morrison is an issue that is almost completely silent, ex- silent except for the final line spoken on the final page yeah which of course is spoken by marcel marceau <laughs> stray dogs number two this is written by tony fleeks art is by trish forstner colors by brad anderson Layouts by Tony Rodriguez, flats by Lauren Perry, and design by Lauren Herda. Still don't know who letters this one. This was a question Brian and I had last time. There's no letterer credited. Don't know if that's the designer, the artist, if Tony Fleeks went back and lettered. Every now and then there are some some creator-owned writers who will letter themselves. Uh, John Lehman does it. Joy Belair is now a writer, so she also writes and letters her books as well. Yep. So, one of those people also lettered it. Someone. Yep. Don't know who. You got caught up on this as well, right? You had had trouble tracking down number one, if memory serves? Yes, I went ahead and just got the first two uh, digitally, and I'm so happy I did. This is one of the most insane concepts for... (laughs) The thing thing is, like, it's insane, but, but it's also insane in the sense that it's weird no one has done this yet. Yeah, you know, it's it's such a great setup. Mm-hmm. It's it's the opposite of well, that shouldn't work, and it did. It's like, well, of course, this is a perfect setup, and yet it feels so completely creative and new. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a little sad. This is only going to be five issues, but at the same time, like, yeah, that makes sense. This is not something that I think could go on for like you know a year or two. This this is definitely a short short book i believe when we talked about this when it was solicited brian had seen in previews that this had already been optioned for an animated feature so maybe we'll get a movie out of this and that will spawn more dog thriller movies or comics as long as it's hand-drawn animated animation i'm fine with that I think that was the plan. I think that's what he said, because it referenced, if memory serves, it referenced Don Bluth. Oh, yeah, because I was getting, I was definitely getting Don Bluth vibes from this book. I mean, I was, I think, like, a a lot of the promotion material is, like, it's this mixed with that, because, like, you're like, oh, it's all dogs go to heaven mixed with the silence of the lambs, or um, there was another one, it's like something mixed with seven. I forget what it was. Cats don't dance. Cats don't dance. Yes, cats don't dance. Mixed with seven. Not really. But the All Dogs Go to Heaven, Silence of the Lambs comparison, that, that so- at least sort of makes sense. But um, 
Yeah, this looks like a Don Bluth cartoon as a comic, but does not feel tonally like a Don Bluth story. Psycho meets Rockadoodle. We don't mention that movie here. Yeah, we do. No, we don't. Rockadoodle was one of my favorite movies as a child. I'm not talking about Rockadoodle. I'm talking about Psycho. Oh. Honestly, never seen it. It's 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 pretty good. Um, I I disagree with everyone saying that it's Hitchcock's best movie because as it doesn't even make my top ten to be honest. Rear Window is great. I actually got to see that in theaters. If you could recast any Hitchcock movie with dogs, which would it be? Ooh, well, honestly, Rear Window I think pretty good, pretty good one. Uh, Rear window fits well because dogs are good at sitting out window and barking. Also, rope since rope all take all takes place in one apartment. Um, let me think. Honestly, I think those two really work. Either rope or rear window. Um, maybe vertigo. Vertigo would be interesting. The birds would all. I think I, I was honestly, gonna say. What about the birds? The bird. Well, it's funny. I'm not a fan of that movie. But I think if it were recast with dogs, it would be infinitely better. What wouldn't be infinitely better recast with dogs? Alien, because everyone dies. Okay, you got me there. <laughs> Basically, any movie where where the, where the entire cast, like the majority of the cast or the entire cast dies, that is a movie I don't want recast with dogs because I'll just be crying the entire time. <laughs> Titanic, but it's dogs. No. <laughs> Are you trying to break my heart right now, Alex? Draw me like one of your French poodles. Oh, God. The Amazing Spider-Man number 62, written by Nick Spencer, art by Patrick Gleason, colors by Edgar Delgado, and letters by Joe Caramagna. I caught up with this entire (laughs) book. I've got to say, by the way, the sheer number of comics you have read in the last two weeks is astonishing to me. Yeah, I had, see, I reread 41, because uh, that was the last issue I had read. So then I read, so I read 41 through 62, plus the, um, there's the Sins of Norman Osborn one shot, and the Sins Rising Prelude one shot. I read all of that. Yeah. By yesterday. Yeah. Um, and how did that all read in, in one one run look since rising and last remains are fucking dark i was not expecting them to go that go that road <laughs> that being said i enjoyed it nick spencer is such a good writer that i was still compelled to continue reading it even though it was getting so dark because i knew that it, there was going to be a light at the end of the tunnel thank god that light is boomerang boomerang yes because boomerang and spidey co-parenting gog Look, that is honestly just what I want for the rest of this run. I don't know how long right. Nick Spencer is going to be continuing continuing writing. I'm, I I I want to say there's a possibility he might go all the way up through 900 because they just hit 850 not long ago. Yeah, what is? Do you know off the top of your head what issue number this one correlates? I to? believe it's uh 863, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it should be 863 because uh. His first issue was yep, eight. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So I, I would imagine that he, there's a possibility he might go all the way up through 900 just to get to that landmark and then probably end his run. I could see that. I could also see. 
I know that in June, which would be around 68, 69, there is another like big one shot that, that ties up this Kingpin arc. He might end it there. I don't know. I could see like 75 or 875. Like I could see somewhere around there. Yeah. Like another, another like little milestone before he hits 900. Yeah. Cause we'll still have, I mean, we'll still have, I think some amount of the kindred stuff on the table at that point. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there are 25 issues there, but there may be, I don't know. We'll see. I, I definitely think, I definitely think somewhere in that range of 75 to a hundred issues feels very attainable. Yeah. Um, also the reveal of who kindred is being Harry Osborne totally came out of left field for me. <laughs> When reading, yeah. when getting to Last Remains, and I understood. I remember when we first started talking about me getting back to reading it, uh, and you talking about how there is you didn't specify it, of course, but it was, of course, kin- the Kindred reveal that uh, yeah, a, there's a piece of information that the audience us knows, but Peter doesn't know, and we just have to read along and sit in that. Since you read it in single issues, I'm I know it was far longer than it felt than it felt for me because i only read it in trade and it was only like yeah three issues later that you know it's revealed to peter who he that it's harry the whole time i forgot that harry was still alive actually (laughs) uh because i was like wait so harry came back from the dead oh wait no he's been alive for a number of years and has a family gotcha okay and that made, and it made, and then it was like, okay, so Absolute Carnage makes totally, like, makes total sense why Normie is there. Because I didn't know who Normie was before I read Absolute Carnage. Mm, you haven't read the whole Dan Slot run then. No, I have not. This is, uh, in fact, I have read quite a bit of the Bendis Bagley Ultimate Spider Man run. I have read, of course, I read a Spider Man Life Story, which is great. And then I've been reading this, and that's about it. And I've read, I, gotcha. and I've read like other, you know, like standalones, or not really standalone, but just like stories that are good, uh, touchstones like Craven's Last Hunt. Uh, I read Tom McFarlane's Torment from the adjectiveless Spider-Man. Spider-Man Reign. No. Here is one of my controversial opinions. I actually kind of like that book. Remind me what happens in Reign. Wait, is that the one where we get the the stuff with Norman and Gwen? Or was no, that... that's the one where where it's set. Spider Man is older, right? And, uh, gotcha. Mary Jane has died because of exposure to Peter being radioactive. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I remember this now because that was right yeah. before the the bullpen that included Dan Slott took over on the book. Yeah, this was this was meant to be like Spider Man's answer to Dark Knight, whatever that means. Yeah, like I don't I don't really know what that means except, you know. I guess Spider-Man is an older man and the world sucks. Except that last issue of Life Story was great. Love Life Story. Very excited for Zdarsky to write uh Spider-Man Spider's Shadow. Yes, Peter soon. turning into like what if Peter was Venom? That is a great yeah. concept. And I'm I'm here for for Zdarsky doing that. However, we're not talking about Zdarsky. We're talking about Spencer and Gleason and how Boomerang has some issues just leaving Gog with with MJ, and he really doesn't want it. <laughs> the great <laughs> moment of just 
the brilliant lettering of just having him shout, I'ma miss him so much. Yeah, I, uh, Fisk still wants to take down Boomerang so that he can get the pieces to the Tablet of Life and whatever. Um, MacGuffin. Yes. The Tablet of MacGuffins. Yes. There are two tablets now in play. Uh, I love that, I love that Wilson Fisk just shows up to monologue at Kindred. Like, Kindred is at some point going to hand Wilson Fisk his own ass. He has to. I mean, he 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 did it halfway by, you know, when Fisk, you know, got on bended knee begging him to help him bring his wife back. And Kindred just straight up said no. Yeah. So, yeah, is, this is going to this is all going to come back. Kindred is going to fuck him up. Mm hmm. So why do you think the thing that Carly Cooper learns that she's so freaked out by, but that we haven't gotten the answer to is I'm yet is really not sure at all. I'm I'm just hoping that she's okay. I just care about her too much. I just care about her so much. I just want her to be okay. I always want Carly Cooper to be okay. I want her to go on I'm that a big date Carly with Overdrive, Cooper damn it. <laughs> yeah. Like, Carly just, whatever brings Carly happiness, Carly deserves. Yes, she has gone through too much shit. The most underappreciated of Peter Parker's exes. Absolutely. I love I love I, have I this... love seeing her come back and and have that conversation with MJ about yeah. you know the, the 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 support group that she winds up going to. I love it. And yeah. that honestly makes sense having a support group for people who just have who who are just like in either have relationships with superheroes whether it's, you know, their partner or a family or a family or just a friend. It makes total sense to have something like that. Agreed. All right. Is it still good? Action Comics number 1029. Uh, this is the first Infinite Frontier issue of Action Comics, but it's actually continuing the Golden Age from Superman number 29. Uh, we also have in this the continuation of the future state Midnighter story in the form of The Passenger Part 1. Uh, both of these you need to have read what comes before them for. The Golden Age uh, deals with kind of Superman's side of seeing John worry about his impending demise. And sort of his pride at his son stepping up and trying to, to protect him. Uh, the, the Passenger deals with Midnighter, who is from the future, in the present now. To try to stop the the events of that future state story, which saw uh, an insane techno futurist replace his own brain first with a supercomputer, and then eventually slowly turn into a robot wearing Apollo's skin. Uh, Midnighter is trying to stop this, but because his brain computer was destroyed, has put the same supercomputer brain in his head. So now he has that villain living in his brain egging him on and goading him not your best plan midnighter well he is like a lesser version of that essentially and... but he does have an awesome trench coat and a computer in his brain yeah he has that too he has that going for him next batman second son number five this picks up after the last issue's events uh jace is now 
a C-level employee of Fox Industries, Wayne Tech. Again, not sure exactly where the branding is now that Lucius is in charge. Uh, as a way to get technology he needs to continue on his his mission to take down some shitty billionaire. Uh, and he also works to uh, avenge his sister who was photographed by basically an Instagrammer while in the hospital comatose and posted all over social media. Black Panther number 24. This is the penultimate issue of Ta-Nehisi Coates' run on the book. Uh, it is a big battle between Wakanda and the superheroes of Earth who have come to help fight alongside T'Challa and the intergalactic Wakandan Empire led by Najatika and his god symbiote. I need to read Black Panther. You do. Um, I have been a big fan of Ta-Nehisi Coates' run all along. I know that first arc was a little academic for some folks, but it has gone from that to being space opera. So, like, it contains a lot of different ideas and stories. Cable number nine. Uh, Cable continues to try to hunt down Strife or Kid Strife or whoever at this point is responsible for kidnapping babies. Uh, and that may involve some amount of going to or dealing with hell. Excalibur number 19. The Captain Britain Corps finally tracks down Betsy Braddock, the prime Captain Britain. And we learn where she's been, why she didn't come back right away after her body turned to glass and shattered and was installed as a mosaic by Opal Luna Saturnine, who is just the most extra villain in an X-Men book in the best possible way. She's great. Uh, and also, which X-Men villain has tagged along for the ride in Betsy's Return? Guardians of the Galaxy number 12. Uh, this is the conclusion to the Guardians' fight against the Greek gods. Those are some words to string together, judging by uh, JD's response to that visually. I only read the first three issues, uh, then the pandemic hit, so that is news to me. I, I dig this book, which is weirdly about, like, working through trauma and fighting Greek gods. Yeah, that sounds like it's, like, right up my alley. Cool. Uh, this also sets up a new status quo for the Guardians and the sort of intergalactic political scene that I think we'll probably see flow over into other books. Certainly Sword, which Al Ewing is also writing. Uh, but also probably that future we saw teased at the end of Empire. Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 24. Uh, this is one of my favorite kinds of issues. It's the Two superheroes hanging out on their downtime between big world-shattering events. Uh, this takes place after Outlawed and King in Black. Miles and Kamala are hanging out. They're gonna go get ice cream. She's told her parents she's across town or in New York to check out a book from the library that she needs a physical copy of, which is true, but has built in enough extra time to go grab ice cream with Miles and catch up. That goes every bit as much according to plan as you'd expect. But watching them try to play basketball using their superpowers is actually pretty hilarious and adorable. And then we get the hook at the very end of this for the next arc of this story, 
the Miles Morales clone saga. Which I should not be excited for, but I am. Uh, and finally, Taskmaster number five. This wraps up the uh, Rubicon protocol, or whatever the storyline has been called. We learn who has been pulling the strings in orchestrating Maria Hill's death and setting Taskmaster and Nick Fury on the path to unlock these Rubicon protocols that Norman Osborn installed while he was director of Hammer that would literally wipe out all life on Earth uh, and get a great reminder of just how much of, at the end of the day, a dick Taskmaster really is. This week's books. We are at the home stretch now. We have a solitary Infinite Frontier issue this week. The Flash number 768. This was written by Jeremy Adams, with art by Brandon Peterson, Marco Santucci, and David Lafuente, with colors by Mike Tia, Arif Prianto, and Luis Guerrero, and letters by Steve Wands. This is, I believe, focusing on Wally as the Flash on Earth. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about this before, JD. Barry has been recruited by Justice Incarnate to join it. Out in the multiverse. Makes sense. Uh, some some Grant Morrison connection there. Mm -hmm. um, and he has left Flash as... Has left Wally as the Flash on Earth. Uh, I know this has something to do with like the Flash getting pulled into different points in history as different speedsters. I don't know exactly what's up with this, though. I'm super excited. I'm excited to see Wally back in play. Uh... Not dealing with the fallout of Heroes in Crisis, hopefully. Tell me about crossover number five. Donny Cates is back, baby. Uh, so crossover <laughs> number five, after the events of the last issue with the reveal that uh, the main character of Donnie's own, Donnie and Jeff's own book, a little, little story called God Country, one of my favorite comics of all time, uh, the granddaughter of the of the main character in that story, Emmett Quinlan, uh, has revealed herself to the to the the paybacks and uh, their companions, and she reveals you know you're gonna you're gonna need something, and this sword called Valifax might help, which is just a fucking huge sword that talks, and it's awesome, and I'm I'm so ready for the ride that this is going on. I've I've been right I've been writing the high of that last issue for the past couple of weeks <laughs> and I am just so ready for this. The fact that Madman is in this and did not even crack all of that says just how much crazy stuff is in this book. I know I need to read Madman. I'm I'm not familiar with Madman, so I'm gonna be reading that at, at some point. Also from Image, we have Shadecraft number one. This is written by Joe Henderson, art by Lee Garbutt, colors by Antonio Fabella, and letters by Simon Boland. Uh, you may recognize this team from, I think Skyward was the name of the last book they did together at Image, about a world where Earth, where gravity had been turned off. Uh, Joe Henderson, of course, is the showrunner for Lucifer on Netflix. This is a book about a girl who's kind of afraid of everything. And then really spooky shit starts happening. Shadows come to life and start attacking and disappearing or murdering people. Um, so like some horror vibes here. I'm excited for this. JD, uh, a book that certainly 
no one on this podcast has been giddy about before. That's a lie. Me. Beta Ray Bill number one, written and drawn by Daniel Warren Johnson, with colors by Mike Spicer, and I'm assuming letters by Russ Wutan. He usually does. Nope. Oh, nope. Letters by Joe Sabino and Daniel Warren Johnson. Cool. Uh, Russ usually does his letters, so that is my bad. Um... Now, I haven't been reading King and Black just yet. I will be getting to it this week. Now that I have caught up with everything I was going to be reading for this, I'm now going to get back to my mostly reread of Venom. Uh, since I haven't been reading it for a long time, I'm rereading those first four arcs uh, and getting into Venom Beyond and then King and Black. This spins out of the events of King and Black and uh, follows, you know, the second most famous wielder of Mjolnir, except the better wielder of Mjolnir, because Beta Ray Bill is... Jane Foster? She is second to Beta Ray Bill. Okay, so we're putting Thor third. Yes, we are. I'm I'm okay with this ranking. <laughs> I'm just kidding. As Jane long Foster's as we acknowledge Jane Foster over Thor, then... No, Jane Foster is so much better than Thor. That's why I'm so excited for Thor Love and Thunder. Yes. I am I am so here for this movie. Same, same, hard same. Have you seen the photos of her arms? Hard same. Yes. Um and also I forgot to mention crossover number five is written by Donny Cates with art by Jeff Shaw, colors by Dee Kniff, and letters by John J. Hill. Did I get that right? You did. Okay. I have weird information in my brain sometimes. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess really the only thing from King and Black you totally need to know for this is Null likes putting symbiotes on dragons. Yeah, and he that's does. Probably why, that's probably why on the cover of this Fin Fang Foom is nullified. Yeah. I, I, I kind of got that vibe from when I, uh, yeah. I just recently reread that first, uh, that first arc of Venom Rex yeah. when we have a giant fucking Grendel uh, yeah. just so good. Kids love chains. Noel loves dragons. Yes. Kids love chains. I have the t-shirt to prove it. And last one. Silk number one. Written by Maureen Gu. Art by Taksha Miyazawa. Colors by Ian Herring. And letters by Ariana Mar. This series originally solicited like a year ago. Finally coming out. Love Silk. One of my favorite new characters to come out of... Dan Slott's run on Spider-Man. Uh, Silk, of course, created at the same time by the same spider that made Peter into Spider-Man. Uh, becomes a protege to J. Jonah Jameson. And every bit as much fist-waving, you're a menace Spider-Man as he is toward Spider-Man. He is as encouraging toward Silk, at least in her civilian persona, Cindy Moon. Uh, I... I'm so excited for more of this character and cannot wait. JD, self-promotion time. Self-promotion time. Right. So my name is JD Martin. Uh, I host a show called Comics Quest that is also on the Certain POV Network, as the show is as well. Uh, you can find us at CertainPOV.com as well as you know uh, everywhere you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Comics Quest Show. Uh, as of this uh, recording we have the final episode of season two coming out this week uh with where i bring in jesse ferguson from recorded tomorrow to discuss matt fractions hawkeye get excited it's a great episode talking about a wonderful wonderful comic and yeah that's uh that's pretty much all i have going on awesome thank you for guesting here again 
uh, and for letting me drag you into so many more comics than I think you planned to to read over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we will have you back in the future, I am sure. We would also like to thank Chase Parker, as always, for our intro voiceover. Panelology, as JD mentioned, is a member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, go to CertainPOV.com. You can visit our website at panelologypodcast.com, support us at patreon.com slash panelology, get merch at bit.ly slash panelologymerch, capital P, capital M, or send us question, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelologymailbag, capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. And I'm JD. Go read comics! CertainPOV.com Hey, Nerf Herders. You sure you want to go with that? Hey, everyone? There we go. More inviting. Have you ever had a movie that you really wanted to love, but something holds you back? Or one that you did love in spite of a flaw? Well, I'm Casey. And I'm Sam Alisea. And on another pass, we sit down with cool guests to look at movies that we find fascinating. But flawed. And we try to imagine what could have been done when they were made to give them that little push. We're not experts. We just believe in criticism. Uh, constructive criticism. Sure. So come take another pass at some movies with us. And every now and then, we can celebrate movies that did it on their own, too. You can find us at CertainPOV.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Pass it on. 